0: Hey, also, something else that's going on big uh, right after the service. Oh, no, that's, that's not happening today. Um, so, uh, is voting happening right now? And so, you may not like what's going on in America. You may like what's going on in America. You may not like it. But this is your opportunity to get involved in it. And let me encourage you. Normally, we focus on the presidential election time. And it's like, whether you know, because you kind of feel like the president's going to change everything. But really, where everything seems to be happening in America is at the school level. Um, and you have an opportunity to vote for superintendent. you have an opportunity to vote for uh, student, uh, school council and all that, that's where we tend to villainize public schools and we'll get angry at a school or at the teachers. But really, uh, it, it is the folks that we, we elect for uh, this council of uh, teachers that decides what the curriculum is going to be. So this is your opportunity if you don't like what's being taught. I'm not crazy about what's being taught. This is your opportunity to get involved. All you have to do is Google it, find out your candidate, find out where they stand on some key issues, and then get her done. Vote and change the direction of where we're going as a country. So last week we talked about the certainty of Jesus. I'm surprised I still have a job because it it was hard. I mean, it was tough to talk about the way that I talked about Jesus, about how he, there was a point when he wanted everybody to know where they stood. And we don't like blunt moments like that when when somebody tells us right where we stand with them. And we discovered that there is a real charity in clarity. There are times when somebody needs to know exactly where they are with you. And there are times when Jesus communicated, listen, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you'll have nothing to do with me." And I was like, wow, wait a minute. So I've heard all this good stuff about God and about Jesus and about love and all that, but Jesus all of a sudden says, listen, I need you to be certain about this. And we were really challenged about that last week. Well, today we're gonna go with that Jesus doesn't want us only to be certain about him, he also wants us to be certain about relationships, about how we relate to other people. Um, The certainty of Jesus called us to action. We're going to find out in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus does not mince words about how we're supposed to be treating other people and that it's very important. We're going to see that there's supposed to be a certainty in how we interact with other people. So today's story, Jesus is going to be asked a question by an educated young man and it's real straightforward. This guy, like, gets in his face, feels pretty confident about himself because of his education and his standing in the community. So he he actually tests Jesus. I mean, he wants to take him down. He, so he's, he's about to present a question to Jesus and challenge Jesus. But what I have found when reading the gospel is that whenever Jesus is asked a question, his answer usually reveals that it was the wrong question to ask Jesus about. And we're going to find... That's true. In this particular question, we're going to see that how we treat people is evidence of how we think rightly or wrongly about God and ourselves, that how we interact with other people is real pivotal, and it's a revelation of what we really think about God, because what we think about the unseen God is made manifest about the, as how we live in the seen world. That's how we manifest our knowledge of the unseen God. It's how we respond and act with other people. So we're gonna learn a lot today. It's a familiar story, but we're gonna take a little bit of a twist on it. Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, this is not an ask because I want eternal life. This is a test. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the young man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with, and with all your mind, and your neighbors, yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the young man, the young lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and two is my neighbor. So this is a classic uh, way of arguing with somebody. And I get this a lot when people will argue with me about the existence of God. They want to talk to me about uh, Big Bang Theory, multiverse, uh, evolution, all those things, which I love and and I'm fascinated with. Um, That I find out that the questions that they're asking are really not the right questions they, they're the ones they're using, but they really don't want the implication of the answer. I, I have never, I've been a pastor for 30 years, I have never in my life explained the origin of the universe and the compatibility possibly of evolution and Christianity to try to resolve some, maybe some tension, and I've yet to have anybody fall to their knees and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Most of the time, the questions that we ask God are deflection. They are a way in this story that the man wanted to justify himself, or to free himself, it could have been translated. He wanted to free himself from responsibility of action. So he came up with a question to try to free himself from from doing something or being responsible. See, there is real power in ambiguity and vagueness in saying that you believe in God. You could tell me, as most Americans, I think we're at 80 or 85% of Americans believe in God, the existence of God. There's something wonderfully vague about it. No commitment at all. You don't you're not locked down. You can believe in God, and it doesn't seem to affect anything that we do. But there's a there's a, a kind of a cloaking that we say, oh yeah, I believe in God. And it, it really doesn't kind of call you out to any specific kind of responsibility. But you say that you have surrendered to Jesus Christ, there's real clarity in that. That's why I recommend, ladies, if you're dating somebody and I know you wanna marry a godly man, do not ask him if he believes in God. All men believe in God at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. Okay, They, they all believe in God. What you need to ask him is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? And I'm telling you why. You will watch some of the, I mean, you thought he was dancing earlier. There's some serious dancing that's going to happen right there. But it's true about all of us. Is that when we get very specific about following Jesus, and Jesus did this. He was like, listen, if you're going to say, you know, they say, well, we want to follow you. And Jesus says, well, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have nothing to do with me. Unless you pick up your cross and follow after me, you'll have nothing to do with me. Unless you hate your mother, father, sister, brother, you know, and put me first, you'll have nothing to do with me. It's like, wow, that's very specific. Well, I'm telling you, God's very specific about how Christians treat other people. Very specific. There's no ambiguity in it. So we're kind of, I'm, I'm trying to move you from, well, you could walk out of here and say, yeah, I believe in God day. You know, Sunday is believe in God day or today is believe in Jesus day. And it will change how you respond to what you hear today. So this guy loves his vagueness and hides behind his vagueness. So Jesus drills down on this guy's question. Now when Jesus drills down on you, it's not going to go, well, I mean if you all of a sudden going to bow up against him and you're going to try to outsmart him and 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 you know, so he he I love Jesus. He does it in such a beautiful way. So I want you to remember this, that the man is asking a question, who is my neighbor? That's the question. This is not the question Jesus is going to answer. And, I, and, he, and Jesus is going to expose that this is the wrong question. And most of the time when we've read the story, it's like, no, he answers this. Now, if, when, you, when you read it today, you'll see, that's not the question. Who is my neighbor is not the question. So Jesus replied to the man, having just asked, who is my neighbor? He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the hurt man, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man, the hurt man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So why does Jesus pick the Samaritan? Is it because like Samaritans are like the worst people on the earth or something like that? Well, no, the audience that Jesus is talking to, there is, the Samaritan does represent the wrong person, the wrong kind of person. See, we all have biases about particular kinds or types or genders of people. You know, there's, there's some people we just don't expect anything good from. I mean, it may be your son, it may be your son-in-law, it may be, you know, a a Republican or a Democrat, it might be a white person, a black person, a a man or, or a woman, I mean, you may have, we all have these kinds of biases that are operating. So Jesus actually uses that for his argument. So he takes the one person that he knows in his Jewish crowd, these are all good Jewish people, they don't like the Samaritans. Samaritans don't like them. And he's like, I'm going to use the Samaritan. He's going to be the good guy in this story. But the interesting thing, he uses him because the audience has the lowest expectation from the Samaritan. They're like, yeah, they're all dirtbags. Don't expect anything good. So Jesus brings him in. So the Samaritan represents the person everybody has the lowest expectation from. But likewise, Jesus, in the story, uses the priest and the Levite. For a Jewish person, that is the person of the highest expectation. We should get, I mean, this is a God, both these are like professional God people. We should have the highest level of expectation here. We have a bias towards them and we have a negative bias towards this guy over here. So he uses that in the crowd. But really what Jesus is using the Levite and the priest, and this is what he wants us to learn today, is the disconnect from responsibility of Christian people in their connection with God and with other people. He wants to, he, he takes this, what's considered the highest form of religiosity, spiritualness, Yahweh-ish, Jewishness, and which at that time is like, these are the people supposed to be connected to God, and he wants to show the incredible disconnect between religious people and people in need. Because he wants to show there's a, a gross discontinuity about it. And I think that's what he wants to talk to us about today. It's about possibly the discontinu- discontinuity. See, we're all in the pursuit of comfort. God, help me get a job. Help me remodel my house. Help me get a better car. Help my spouse and my, my kid get a good girlfriend or a good husband. We're, we're all in, in this. But what Jesus is going to be like, this isn't what this is about. This is not about you being healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, this isn't all about that. This is about your disconnect with the with the average person that is in need. And that when you want to connect with me, it connects you to this mission of helping other people. And Jesus wants to show that there is no such Christianity where that disconnect occurs. It's an anomaly. So Jesus continues to tell the story. Two religious guys walk by, the Samaritan, who we don't expect any good from, begins to respond to the hurt man. And the Samaritan went to the hurt man and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he sent him on his own animal, he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So then Jesus decides he's going to ask the man a question, the right question. Which one of the, these three do you think proves to be A neighbor? to the man who fell among robbers. And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. See, this is brilliant. The question, the question was, who is my neighbor? It's like, well, who am I supposed to help? Who am I supposed to get involved with? See, I can diffuse responsibility, I can offload responsibility by creating ambiguity about who my neighbor is. Sure, I don't know. They're not the right kind of person to help. Have you ever had that thought? Well, I'd just be wasting my time helping them. That you can dismiss responsibility by choosing whether or not they are the right person to be neighborly to or who is my neighbor. It's, it's comfortable. We do it all the time. You know, have you ever driven past a car on the highway? And, and let's just say I'm just going to be, you know, a 75-year-old woman with a cell phone with a flat tire. I mean... You know, and I say that, I gave that description because chances are she's not going to throw you to the ground and rob you and take your wallet. But, you know, think about all the reasons why you went by. You know, well, you know, it's not good to talk to strangers. Really? She looked that threatening? Really? could She was going to hurt you? Um, well, I, you know, I don't know if I should get involved or I, I really don't know. If, and we, what would we do? We begin to diffuse it. It's like, well, I don't know how to change a tire. That's cool, that doesn't mean you can't pull over and be on the side of the road of her and say, hey, have you gotten a hold of somebody? I can call my son-in-law, he'll be here in five minutes. You know, I mean, but don't we do that? We will diffuse and and for uh, with uh, trying to figure out, and so it's what this man is doing. He's diffusing, who is my neighbor? He's deflecting moral responsibility to something in the other person. The burden of action is moved away from the person who's supposed to Respond. But the samaritan does just the opposite the scripture says then he set him on his own animal instead of moving away the burden he takes the burden and moves it to himself he puts the burden of the other person on his animal jesus is saying this is what this kingdom of god is all about it's about taking the other person's burden and putting it on your animal and say, well, I don't own animals. Yeah, you do. You probably drove in here with an SUV. You're probably going home to a pretty nice house. Most people here are probably going home to a pretty nice house. You probably have a stocked refrigerator. I'm willing to bet most people here have at least a 55-inch TV with a couch in front of it where another human being could enjoy the game with you. I'm thinking most of us probably have got it, you know, we're all about building a bigger, better house, but you know what? We make our animals real big. I mean, we got SUVs that can tow 10,000 pounds with all wheel drive and all that stuff. And, and we're not carrying a single person's burden with it. That's what Jesus is challenging. Well, Pastor Paul, don't you believe God wants us to be wealthy and healthy? Doesn't he want me to be blessed? He wants you to have a really good animal. Yeah, he does. He wants you to have it. Why? So you can set somebody else's burden on it. I'm like, Dang. That is is strong. And is so strong. And so we'll do. We'll do all this. So Jesus, and after telling this story, discards the man's faulty question. The guy like, ain't asking you a stupid question. He didn't say that, but if I was Jesus, that's what I would have said. <laughs> um, and aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? <laughs> He's, but he asks a question of his own. Which one of these three young men do you think? Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell on the, uh, among the robbers. See, who is my neighbor is an offloading the burden question. Who proved to be a neighbor is a loading the burden on your life question or answer. See, it's not looking to see who did, who's determined to be my, my neighbor, but rather, I'm supposed to be adding this about me. See, this is the call of Jesus with certainty to shift the load to your life. To shift it to your life. He's like, wait a minute, he wants to, he wants to put the burden of us. Remember, in Christianity, who we called to be like? Um, we're called to be like Jesus. First Peter says this, and Jesus bore himself, bore the burden on his animal, our sins in his body, On the cross so that we may die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. See, he shifts shifts the load of your failures onto his animal, his body, his cross. And then we're called to do exactly what Jesus did, to become Christ-like. This shift of load determines who is the real neighbor, it's not asking who's my neighbor; it's saying, "Who am I neighboring?" That's what Jesus is like. You're not supposed to be figuring out who your neighbor is because in America we do that geographically. The house on the left of me, the house on the front of me, the house on the behind me; those are the people that are determined to be my neighbors. And Jesus is like, "Oh no, 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 no! That's not the gospel. That's America. But that's not no. one in the gospel, in the gospel, it's who you're supposed to be asking the question: Who are you neighboring?" We, we've all been in that place where the house next to us is vacant. And what do we do? Um, and I get prayer requests, and I, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody here, and, but it's sometimes they'll, so, Pastor Paul, please pray. The house next door is next to us. Just pray that God will move some a nice family in next door with nice kids that will play with our kids, you know, and that they will move in and that God will bring, like, a Christian family to us. And Jesus is like, what? It's like, no, you should be praying. Jesus, the house next door is, is empty next to us. Please move somebody in with a burden that can come right next to me so that I can offload their burden into my nice, pretty house. You know, that's the gospel not looking to ra- surround ourselves with people of equal financial position, same color, same, same political view, and then we call ourselves, now you're my neighbor. It's like, no, God, move somebody in next to me that's whacked, somebody that's weird, somebody who's lost, somebody who's desperate. Bring me a broken family. I don't know why I'm saying it like that, but I feel like I should be on TV like a gospel preacher or something. Well, I am preaching the gospel, so I guess I am, and I am on TV. So, hey, we're there, baby. I'm not trying to be anybody, I'm being me. So, but that's the whole thing, though, is, is that he wants us to make a difference in other people's lives. Instead of surrounding ourselves with neighbors of like, you know, basically, what do we really all want? We want neighbors that don't bother us. Oh, my goodness, that's exactly me. We want neighbors that look like us and don't bother us. And Jesus is like, you're planning out the wrong life. The question is, is you know, are you neighboring? And if you're not giving mercy to somebody, you're not neighboring. You're proximate, but you're not neighboring unless you're giving mercy. That really challenges us. Coming to Christ is responding to the call to prove who the real neighbor is. So let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, don't worry about this. You don't have to answer. But I, if you're not a Christian, you, I think you might start be getting impressed with what real Christianity looks like. Um, so if you're a Christian here, ask yourself this question, whose load am I shifting on my animal? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Um Whose load are you shifting onto your animal? Because that's real Christianity right there. And Jesus was said this in very clear terms. I watched this home decorating shows with Susan, No Demo Reno, um, all the different shows that are there, um, and I hate them. I hate every single one of them. I just you know everybody's getting subway tile and this done. But you know what I hear a lot, and I watch them because I love my wife, and she watches football, and. It's, it's kind of a deal that we make with each other. But on those shows, I, I hate it because usually there'll be this couple that despises their house, Ugh, you know? It's like they've lost the blessing in their house, so they start despising their house, and then they see another house, and, and they'll say, oh, we really like that because, you know what, it's a bigger house. We can entertain more people, and we can, we're gonna have parties and, you know, we're just going to have friends. Over. It's like, you're already a jerk. You don't need 1,500 more square feet to find out you're not a nice person. Because if you're not a nice person in welcoming people in your small house, don't expect square footage to make somebody your neighbor. Okay? And it's like, oh, that's all I need. Then I'll be compassionate. It's kind of like people who say, pray for my business so I can give more money to the church. It's like, oh, I'm not doing that. You're not giving money to the church now. Why do you think I'm going to, if you get more money and you win the lottery, you're going to give it to the church? This ethic is everything. Love the Lord God with all your heart and mind, soul, and body and love your neighbor as yourself. And I love it. He kind of conjoins it to like neighbor and self. We're in a culture right now where it's all about you loving you. You defining you, your own truth and you got to love you, love you, loving you. You know, I mean, it's like, And Jesus is like, that's way too much. You loving you, we need we need to know that you connected to God, connected to you, is loving somebody else, and that's real Christianity. And I know, you're like, crap. I really just wanted to come to church and get pumped up. Um, this, I helped somebody the other day. I'm not a real helper person. It's not really my thing. Um, It's not my first nature to help. But then again, why are we trying to be our first nature? We're supposed to be having divine nature. I mean, so why am I trying to find out how I was made? Rather, I'm supposed to be, who am I supposed to become? And, and so um, I had this situation, if you're like me, where I like to do what I do when I do it. And I have like, if, if you want me to be kind to you, come see me on Monday and Thursdays between the hours of nine and four. After five, I want to do some fishing. Uh, kindness drops. Whoa, a little bit low. Let me just tell you by Thursday, there's no kindness in me at all. Cause I got to write a sermon. And so I had somebody, I came in to write a sermon on Friday. I was running late. Um, that's a lie. I write all my sermons on Friday. Uh, so, uh, they, uh, I pulled in, there was nobody here. I'm like, this is gonna be great. I got the whole building to myself. I can focus. And there was this minivan Outside, and when I pulled up, the minivan pulled up next to me, and I'm like, oh crap. Hey, I'm serious, I did. A needy person. Because there's only one reason why you drive a minivan it's because you're in need. You know, it's like, I'm only joking. I, you know, you do it because you have kids. But so this person pulled up to me, somebody was crying in the van. I'm like, seriously, inside of me, I'm like, oh my gosh. It's Friday. I don't do this on Friday. I'm writing a sermon on the Good Samaritan today. (laughs) I don't do needy people. And I'll tell you what. Um, So uh, uh, I needed it. So it was two women and they had a genuine need. And I was the only one here. So I said, listen, can I get back to you in an hour? And the only reason why was because I needed another woman here because uh, we're really really careful about that so it got uh linda came here and these two women came in and i tell you what, i don't know if we spent two hours with them but we were able to make a real difference uh and uh they came to church on the first service and um i tell you why: when they walked out never on a sunday for a second don't you think for a second that i walk out of here on sunday after church and say you told them paul you're awesome no I almost always go home and say I suck after a sermon. But I tell you what, after me and Linda helped this woman and her daughter and they walked out and we told them how we were gonna help them and how we were gonna minister to them and everything was gonna be okay. I was like, yes, I'm freaking awesome. You know, I mean, it's like, why? Because that's Jesus surging through me. You know, it's like, wow, this is what it's like to be God. I know that sounds scary, and I didn't say I was God, but this is what, because God's all about love and about giving and helping people with burdens and taking burdens off of them and carrying burdens for them. So I'm just telling you, your new house, your new job, your new girlfriend, it's not going to give you the pizzazz that you want. When you start helping people, taking the burden off of them and carrying some of that burden for them, man... It feels great. One of the greatest destroyers of our society, our marriages and our families, is called pass, I hate this word, passivity. Passivity. And it's it's what destroys a marriage. It's what destroys friendships. It's what destroys a society. It's a real thing. And that's really why it's kind of funny and it kind of blows me away a little bit because um, passivity is weird because I'm into the world of science and in the world of science, we don't believe in an uncaused effect. And if you're out there and you kind of, ride riding that way, you know what I'm talking about. We don't believe in an uncaused effect. We believe every effect has a cause. Side note, if you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, you say, well, what about God? Well, God's not an effect, but we can talk more about that. Therefore, he doesn't have to have a cause. But we don't believe in the world of science and time and space. We don't believe in effects that don't have cause. In the world of philosophy, we would phrase it this way. From nothing, nothing comes. That nothing doesn't have a power. But it's interesting. Passivity, though it's actually the act of nothing, has all the power in the world. It has the power to create chaos. It's really weird. It's like this choice to do nothing is, 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 the, is a power of a sort. It doesn't abide by the rules. When we refuse good and truth and compassion, we, when we refuse it, we produce chaos in the world around us. When a dad doesn't spend time with his son or a daughter or listen to the stories, or be involved in their life and they're just passive at home, we are actually creating something. You're actually doing something. When a a wife and a husband no longer actively work on their marriage and start bearing the burden of responsibility in the marriage, guess what happens? Chaos enters into the marriage. When it happens in a society, when good people do nothing and we allow evil to go around, What happens? Oh, what we mostly do is like, oh God, what's going on in the world? Or the devil. It's like, it ain't the devil. It's passivity. It's good people not doing what they're supposed to do. So if God's given you a 55-inch TV and a couch that fits three, then why is there only one of you on it? You know, me and my wife, we foster cared uh, for five years. And the only reason why we, well, we did it because Jesus told us to, but uh, the real reason was because I remembered about six years ago, we're in this house, it's got four bedrooms, it's got like three baths, and it's like, you know, I said, Susan, I I think it's sin for us to have a house this big with nobody in need in it. I think we need to sell our house. That was an interesting conclusion because I would have rather have sold my house more than take somebody in. Isn't that crazy? That's stupid crazy. And so it's like, we're gonna have to foster care. We found somebody to foster care for five years, worked out great, felt awesome. I don't feel guilty about my house no more. It's like, because wow, I, I rendered it for the kingdom of God, and it worked. So God does want you to be successful. God does want you to prosper. God does want you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But not just so that you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise, so that you can load somebody else's sickness onto your animal, somebody else's poverty onto your animal, somebody else's loneliness onto your animal, somebody else's burden onto your animal. Nobody has been called to get rich for themselves. Is there any problem with being rich? No, unless it becomes an animal that you're not bearing somebody's burden with. That's when it becomes a problem. The scripture actually agrees with me, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, the Apostle James was like freaking out. He was like, "I don't get it. These people believe Jesus died for their sins, carried their burden, and they're not doing anything. They're just complaining about the liberals. They're they're complaining about abortion. I get it. I'm against it also, but we're not adopting." You know how weird that is—that we're going to stand on a street corner at an abortion clinic and call them murderers, but we're not adopting or foster caring. We've got a family in our church that's anti-abortion, and I get it, and I defend that, and it, you know, but they like—they just gather children. They just gather children. So when they tell me they don't believe in abortion, I'm like, <laughs> I, I, they don't believe in abortion. They believe in life. But you know what, for the regular conservative that just, I don't believe in abortion, does not one thing to lift. Do you know if every church in America sponsored the foster care of two children, there would be no children in foster care in the United States. No orphanages will have kids in it. If just one church would foster two children. And I know this sounds crazy, and um, but this is the kingdom Jesus came to bring us. And he's being really in our face about this. Stop worrying about who your neighbor is. Start worrying about whether or not you're neighborly. That's the kingdom of God. You know, um, when every time this church floods, it always challenges me because people say, I'm just praying that the church doesn't flood, and I thank you for those prayers. But I gotta ask myself, is this church worth rebuilding? Would Charleston miss Crosstown Church? Are we worth rebuilding? Are we worth saving from a flood? Oh, every church is. No, not every church is. If we're not doing anything, if we're not ministering to people, if we're not moving the burden, then, then why would it matter if this church floods or gets rebuilt? So James is freaking out. He's like crazy and just, you know, and he and he's like, listen, Christians, you got to figure this out because this isn't what... Jesus came to do. In James chapter 2, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of, a, of daily food, and one of you says to him in a pious voice, go in peace, we'll be praying, be warned, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is this? What use is this Christianity if it doesn't lift the burden of another person? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. He's not saying that we got to work our salvation to be saved. He's just saying, if we got the commitment of Christ selling out to Jesus right, it will change how we deal with people. And I will tell you what, you just love people and minister to people, you won't have to prove the existence of God using science. You won't have to study philosophy to come up with a good cosmological argument against nothingness. You start carrying the burden of other people, people will say, I want what you got. So we started off by saying how we treat people is evidence of how we think rightly or wrongly about God or ourselves we can't be passive about grace or truth neighboring is not a geographical designation stop praying for good neighbors stop praying for good neighbors pray for nasty ugly lost burden-ridden neighbors pray that you prove to be the neighbor but I don't want to get involved James heard that one he said therefore to the one who knows the right thing to do and does it not to him it's sin see the omission of grace is just as much a sin as the commission of evil not doing the right thing for another person is just as much sin as doing evil against another person that's true I mean I don't know why we haven't preached like this in a while but maybe that's my fault So in closing, how do we do this? Jesus tells us, the one who shows mercy, go and do likewise. Start showing mercy. And I know the number one opposition that you have, and you're just like me. It's like, but what if somebody uses me? Well, you're gonna have to get over that. But let's take a little bit further. You know, what if I get involved and it just becomes something, you know, a codependent thing? You know, it's interesting in the story of the Good Samaritan, The man rescues the man from a very specific thing. Then he takes him to a specific place, pays specific money for him to get specifically healed and then comes back and takes care of paying the bills. That's called targeted, managed care. God's not looking for you to just let somebody suck you dry. If that person, after experiencing mercy, does not want to become a person who who wants to extend mercy, then that's the end of it. Jesus fed 5,000 bread. Then he fed 4,000 people bread. And he's walking along and the people are like, hey, Jesus, by the way, it's 5 o'clock. Hey, how about some more bread? And then Jesus says, all right, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, pick up your cross and follow me, you'll have nothing to do with me. See, the mercy was targeted and it was managed. God is not calling you to be used by somebody because that's not mercy. He's he's calling you to help somebody remove a burden so that person can experience mercy, so that person can give mercy. So that's what God wants us to start doing. He wants us to speak mercy serve mercy, stop to do mercy, and spend mercy. That's what he wants us to be about. You're gonna go to the polls hopefully tomorrow and you're gonna vote. And what are you hoping? You're hoping that we will elect the right people that we can pay to do the right things. That is not going to change America. We are a city set on a hill. We are the light of the world. We cannot offload our generosity and our truth and our compassion to an elected official. It is ours to do. It is the burden that we are called. So speak mercy at work. Serve somebody. Stop to do mercy. Pull over to the side of the road. And so you can't change the tire. Just stand with them while they're waiting for somebody to be able to change. it use your money to lift the burden of another person in your life but before you can do this we want to invite you in order to show mercy you've got to be able to receive mercy because i know you want i know that if you really tasted mercy as good as it is as god gives it that you'll want to share it and as we invite you up to communion We're not just remembering what Jesus did for us. We are remembering the act that he saved us. But we remember that this act is also kind of like a fractal. It's kind of a template. It's like, go and do likewise. That we're not only receiving mercy to ourselves, but we're feeding ourselves with the mercy of God so that we can take some of that mercy and give it to somebody else alongside of the road. It may not change the whole world, but it will change the part of the world that you live in. And then you will become neighborly. You'll be the kind of person that people want to move in next to because you help them in life. This is the real Christianity that we have been called to. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. And today we stop first and we ask for your mercy that you have granted us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And today, Lord God, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would restore us through your good graces. And today we remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But we also remember too, that Jesus said, go and do likewise. As I have carried your burdens, go carry the burdens of others as I have loved you love one another so father so whatever advantage you have given us and we thank you for it I like my SUV and I like my 55 inch TV and I like my four bedroom house but God today you have given purpose to that that they are not the achievements of success They are the fulcrum of change in another person's life. They are the leverage of grace to help another person. Whether it's my intellect, my back, my money, or my position, God use me to lift the burden of another person. And thank you for using your back and your position your life to lift my burden.